So hello and welcome to another edition of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. This is our Week in Crime edition. Uh, I'm Paul Healy, um, Chief Reporter of the Irish Daily Star, and I'm joined by Michael O'Toole, crime correspondent. How are you doing, Mike? I'm grand. How are you, Paul? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's been a, another interesting week and uh, we've plenty of varied stories, shall we say, to talk about. But um, maybe we should just start on a, a particularly tragic, a very sad story. And that is the, the very sad passing of, of Deirdre Finn, a um, very respected member of Angarda Siakana and, and just a, a truly horrendous end to her life. You covered the story, Mick, so I'll turn it over to you just to explain what happened. Yeah, Deirdre, she was known as Dee to her many friends and a lot of people who knew her. She was a detective guard based in Dunleary De- uh, District Detective Unit Office in South Dublin. But she had a t- friends were telling me she had two great hobbies or pastimes, rugby and boating. And she had a boat. She owned a, a, a cruiser and it was moored in Carrick on Shannon. She'd been at some, I think there was some sort of boating event and she was there with a couple of friends on Sunday over the bank holiday. Monday and unfortunately um, the boat went in fire overnight uh, and she died and it was a great shock we heard about it early on Monday morning we were just we were just trying to get confirmation and then then the confirmation came through uh, terribly upset and I, you and I would have known Detective Garda Finn from the GRA she was very active in the Garda Representative Association and she was a wonderful woman she's a very funny woman and I know people who would have worked with her um, as I say, she was in the DDU in Dunleary. Before that, she was in Bray and Shankill. She was also one of the first members of what was called the OCU, the Organised Crime Unit, 2008-2009. Remember, Noel Conroy set it up. That became the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. So she was part of the first tranche of senior detectives going after people like Kinnan and all that back in the day. So she was, she was an excellent detective and really fastidious and one of the some of the cases that she was involved in centrally that I remember interacting with her was she's involved in sex abuse cases, and I mean it's it's a it, it's sad but it was funny. She, she Mick O'Neill, our photographer, who, who we talk about a lot, we got wind that there was going to be an arrest of a, a, a suspected sex offender. It was, I think it was quite a big case, but we won't name it. And uh, D Finn was one of the arresting officers, and we got the suspect. But we also got Dee and a couple of her colleagues and she she collared me and Mick O'Neill at the uh, at the conference the following year. She wasn't angry, but, you know, I'd, I'd say it was the, the, the funniest and smartest and kindest rollicking I was ever got. Guards sometimes mm-hmm. don't like being photographed, you know, but Mick got her or the photograph was of her holding her handbag. And that was the one thing that she's really going after us for. But she was a force of nature, you know. She would fill a room with her energy and her vivacity and I always remember her. She had a real smiley face and she was a very jokey person. Now that belied the serious cases she was involved in. If you're in a district detective unit and the OCU, you do heavy crimes and she was involved in a lot of sex crimes. But the energy shone from her face and I know you had interactions with her. Obviously, you know, when the conference is on, people adjourn to the pub and, you know, she would have been quite talkative and there would have been a social element to the conferences. I thought she was a wonderful woman and I thought she had a great zest for life. Yeah, and I recall the incident you're speaking about where she uh, would say accosted our colleague, and, uh, but in a nice way, a friendly way. Um, yeah, a, lo- a lovely lady and, and an incredible investigator. Just a tragic end to her life. I think she was close to retirement. Is that right? Very close to... Yeah, I, I, 
Yeah, I think she was going to go in April. Now, the guards, you can retire after 30 years, I, but there is a facility that you can go earlier. If you, I think they call it buying back a few months. Uh, a friend of mine did it a few months ago. He bought back. So I think the suggestion was she was going to do that, but I think she was a bit close to retirement down here. Definitely less than a year, and she had. Ah, it's very, very sad. Well, she was a lovely woman. Horrendous. Uh, may she rest in peace. Um, we'll just move on to uh, a story that I just wanted to briefly mention. Um, it's a story that I, I we, we first kind of publicized uh, earlier this month, but it's actually transpired now today, I understand. Um, that is uh, the par- parole hearing of Joe O'Reilly, wife killer. Um, this is his, I'm going to get this wrong now, I believe his third attempt at seeking release from prison. He is 16 years in prison for the murder of Rachel O'Reilly, which might surprise many people because it's a case that 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 resonates with most Irish people, a, a huge case. October 2004, she was murdered in their home in Knoll uh, in North Dublin. Um, and since then, O'Reilly has had, as I mentioned, two other previous, certainly two other previous, and I believe this is the third attempt at release. So 16 years. Now, in general, a, a prisoner uh, serving a life sentence will do about 20 years. Um, so it would be rather extraordinary, and especially someone of his, uh, shall we say, infamous infamy uh, to be released after 16 years. But a parole hearing doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that there aren't other benefits that you couldn't achieve. Like, uh, I believe that Joe O'Reilly is looking for an open prison uh, and, and more visitation rights. So perhaps things like that might come out of this. So it's a hugely, hugely uh, traumatizing thing for the family of Rachel Callaly. Every time this comes up, they have had to write letters to the parole board explaining their reasons for why they don't want Joe O'Reilly to be released. Uh, What's interesting about this uh, particular time around is that today uh, the Callies went in and formally met the parole board themselves in person. So that's that's what happened today. And that's the first time that's ever happened. So uh, due to a, a new legislation enacted by the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, families can now actually physically go in and visit a parole board and tell them to their face uh, their reasons for wanting to keep this person behind bars. And I think the Callies welcome that. Uh, certainly, I spoke to Paul Callie previously about uh, the fact that they were going to have this hearing and he he he's the brother of, of Rachel and he said that this would be hugely important for them to go in and for the, the board to see the pain in their faces which cannot really be conveyed through a letter. And that's that's the only process that they had before. And also those letters can be read by Joe O'Reilly. Uh, they don't get to see what Joe O'Reilly says. That's, that's still something that they still can't do. But to a degree, to have that face-on-face um, in-person interaction, I think was huge for them. So I believe that's happened today. And then Joe O'Reilly will have his hearing uh, in the coming weeks Um that could be a matter of only a fortnight from now he'll have that hearing and then they'll go and they'll make the decision i think he will almost certainly not be freed uh but as i mentioned there's possible freedoms that he could be afforded um he's currently in the midlands prison where he is working in the tuck shop there uh which is just a mad thing to imagine him uh giving confectionery to the likes of graham dwyer and whatnot but that is 
what he does, but uh, he's long sought after an open prison. Uh, the biggest, biggest thing that is against him, and you can speak to this, Mick, is that he hasn't admitted his crime. And if you are going to in any way get yourself out of prison early, uh, it's accepting your guilt, your culpability. Is it still the, the, the case that, okay, the, the parole board will make a, a recommendation, but it's up to the minister of the day to decide if he if the a lifer is released? Yes, I think that that would still have to be rubber stamped by Helen McAtee. I don't see that happening. Uh, the parole board gives a recommendation, I suppose, and it gets signed off uh, by the Minister for Justice. So that's, you know, what happens. Um, and I don't think the prison service either has to necessarily fully enact every recommendation of the parole board either. They are recommendations. Um, so I think I think this was covered before that there was a recommendation of, of giving him... Uh, the possibility of visiting his children outside of prison in a kind of a neutral environment. And I believe that wasn't enacted upon or hasn't been to date. Uh, so that was a recommendation, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't follow through so far anyway. The the reason I was asking about that, um, do you remember the late Bran Lenehan? He, yes. Everybody remembers him as finance minister, but before that he was minister for justice. Now, it is back in the mists of time. Joe Riley was done in 2007. I think it was after the uh, Bertie Ahern went. So I, from memory, I will say maybe 2008, 2009, he was Justice Minister. And he's the only Justice Minister ever of, ever to have taken crime hacks out for lunch. Well, maybe they took the elite ones, but I was part of a crowd that was brought out for lunch with, with him one day. I'll always remember him saying, Joe O'Reilly... Because Joe Riley came up and he was hot news back in the day. You know what I mean? It was the big case. Joe, he said to me or to us, Joe Riley will serve 20 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, and, you know, and obviously it was the minister who decided then that that's why I was asking. So let's see if his prediction comes true. Now, let me say back in the day, 20 years seemed like a long time. Maybe it was, it was 14 years ago or, you know, maybe more. And we were going, Jesus, would he serve that long? We're nearly at the end of that time now, so time flies. But I remember, clear as day, he said, Joe Riley will serve 20 years, at least. Yeah, oh, at least. And, and would you want to be the government minister that signed off, signs off on his release? Uh, I think the fact that this case is so infamous doesn't help either. I think that it's it's just one of those that, that uh, I don't think anybody will want to sign off on on his release. Well, the, on the other case, and you, I know you've been active on this with, with Mick O'Neill, Brian Meehan. Yeah, that's... You know, he's even more infamous. I, I think I think his release is inevitable in a way. Uh, like, he, he, like, it's a very different situation where he is in an open prison there in Shelton Abbey um, and is afforded, like, you know, days out and whatnot. Although I don't think there's many of them happening at the moment, days out. Um, but, like, that's... That's that's the end of the road. Now, now you could spend many years in Shelton Abbey. Some prisoners, very difficult ones, have. But Brian Meehan is meant to be quite well behaved behind bars. Has done all the courses. Um, so I, I think I think his release is only a matter of time. Um, he has served. God, how long has he been in there? Ninety seven. I would. I'll go. Twenty six. Twenty six years. Yeah, I I I think his release is inevitable, and they have been kind of slowly preparing us for that with the move to Shelton Abbey um, we'll watch that space but I think Joe O'Reilly is a unique case uh, when, when he hasn't admitted his, his crime and, and that's the, the, the biggest thing 
is is admitting your guilt. And 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 then there's there's the other question which a lot of people will say I personally disagree with this but this is only me you might agree that life should uh, if you take a life you serve you should be locked up for life. But then you know there's also the question of redemption there's also the question of rehabilitation do we want to live in society in a society you know where people where prisoners will have no hope? Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I mean, we've spoken about this before. I always remember Mr. Justice Paul McDermott in the Anacrisial trial. He said something that has always stuck with me. He said, there has to be an element, a punitive element to prison. So it, people talk about rehabilitation and everything. And people have to be punished. But, but then you sit there and go, right, put him in a, put him, lock him away. Never let him see the light of day for, you know, for something that happened. And it's a really hard question because the person he killed, Veronica Gearn, isn't coming back. Rachel Callaly is not coming back. Rachel Callaly will not be able to walk out the doors of Shelton Abbey or the Wheatfield Prison. So it, it is a tough choice. It's tough, but I, I think Joe Riley knows that he's not getting out until he admits it. Um, he's rather stubbornly continued not to, you know. So I think that's the... I, I, I'm trying to remember the name, uh, but recently I... I doorstepped a prisoner who was released after 42 years or something like that he was in for a ridiculous amount of time and and he admitted his crime so i mean what hope has joe riley got you know yeah and 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 rather even more than not admitting it i think it's safe to say that he would still be be trying to convince people that somebody else killed rich yes that's very much the case to this day he continues to blame a particular individual for it, but absolutely no evidence. This person is completely innocent. Uh, there, there's no evidence whatsoever that they're involved. Uh, but he, but Joe Riley's always pointed the finger at this person, uh, and 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 I'm told quite recently still was pointing the finger at that person uh, in prison. So, um, yeah, it takes extraordinary hubris. But then you know he's got he's got two sons there. He's got a family which do support him, uh, and and he has uh, Nikki Pelly continues to visit him. So he has people that stand behind him and support him. And I think so long as he has that support network, I don't think his position is going to change. Um, we move on to a, another rather infamous person who we continue to write about, and that is Patsy Hutch. Uh, I found this fascinating um, because we have long waited for this day in a way because I think the amount of money that the state has paid, has contributed to protecting this man has been extraordinary. So I think we've nearly always nearly been frequently checking in to see whether that Garda post is still there. But um, yeah, it surprised me that it just, it just suddenly uh, came in out of the blue and you caught a rather extraordinary tip off about this. Yes. And it's very important to tell people how we got it. We're not going to say who told us, but we're going to tell people how we got it because uh, it's very important in the context of this pod. Someone who listens to the pod, a civilian, and and this people always think we get our stories from the guards, and you and I always say we'll take stories from anybody. But essentially, a civilian. How can I put this? Who listens to the pod noticed that there was no guard a car at Champions Avenue where Mister Hodge lives. So uh, guards will say that it wasn't a, a, a post. It's called a post when there's a, a permanent presence. That it wasn't a post to protect Mr. Hutch. It's what they call a community reassurance. But I understand where they're coming from. It's to protect and reassure that community in Champions Avenue in the north inner city. But effectively, it was to keep an eye on Mr. Hutch and to prevent any attacks. So 
Um, this person uh, said, what's going on, Michael? I just noticed the thing. Uh, so checked it out, got it confirmed. Wow. Uh, and uh, it was pretty big. It was a pretty big story. So it's it's I think it's cost more than one and a half million quid. There were it was mostly done in overtime, I think. And it was two guards in a marked car, unarmed guards, uniformed on the regular, as we say, sitting there for 12 hours and then replaced by two other guards. So it wasn't the most popular post for any guard or tour for a guard, but it got done. So um, I think the decision was made. Look, uh, it led to even I thought this, is this the end of the feud? Do the guards think this is the end of the feud? And, and I did ask someone who would know and they said, no, nope, not at all. There are things bubbling along in the background to make us believe the feud is still there, which was intriguing. They wouldn't tell me what it was, but sure we'll see. But they did say this decision was made after an assessment in relation to the threat on Patsy Hutch. Now, we will never know because things are very, very tight. But somebody after an assessment and senior guardie in the North Central, I presume maybe Angie Willis, the commissioner for Dublin was involved as well, decided to take this off. But it was four and square on an assessment of the threat. That discrete threat, not no other threats. I, I I play kind of devil's advocate on this. Um, obviously, we're not privy to the intelligence that the guards have, right? So they obviously know best. However, objectively looking at it, I would have said to you that uh, after the trial, after the trial of Jerry Hutch, that it could not have been more unambiguous as to the involvement or alleged involvement of Patsy Hutch in the Regency Hotel, around that incident and the weapons, etc. To the point where, like, it was so public at this stage that, like, if anything, I would have thought that the threat against him would have increased since then or would have been more blatant since then. But obviously the assessment is is, is the opposite. The other thing I, I wanted to point out was the timing of it. And you mentioned it in your story that the, that the guards are being put out on the street because of the inc- the violence in Dublin. Uh, and and you have to kind of look at the optics of that, I suppose. Did somebody sort of say, why do we have two guards sitting in a patrol car at Jabians Avenue when we need them walking the streets? I, I've thought about that because uh, that was my first thing, right? Take away the protection from for, from the, the community where Patsy Hutch lives. And I go, OK, maybe that's it. I was told it wasn't. And the reason why I, I would probably accept that, that, just say something does happen, touch wood. Just say something does happen after the removal of the post, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's heavy stuff. And by the way, uh, of course, some people said to me that we shouldn't have done the story. Let me tell you, the Ke- there are people, and you know this, Paul, there are people associated with the Kinnan cartel who live in North Inner City, Dublin, and who would have known about that days before the star me reported. So it would yeah. have come with no surprise to the, the Kennans would not have picked up the star going, oh, Jesus, he, he doesn't. Have, they knew. It's Let me tell you important, then. important to point that out. Yeah, of course they knew. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's like the, it's like the people who gave out about photos of Jerry Hutch walking the streets. I mean, they, they're not stupid. They, they they know full well he's around. Like. The, the Kennan, Kennans are a billion euro cartel. They li- I remember we did this story. They bought up people in North Inner City, Dublin. They made them betray mm innocent members of the Hutch family, anybody connected to the Hutches, they, they offered people who would have known them money to literally betray them. So, you know, people thinking a story in, in any paper will make Daniel Kennan or whoever sit up and go, oh, they know everything, especially there. But look, just to get back to this, the guards are under pressure. 
about street crime. So my initial thought was, right, this is a response to that. But they're saying, no, it was a serious analysis on that specific threat. So I'm intrigued by that, but who knows? It has something happened that we're not aware of, you know, in that I, that's that that was one of the first thoughts I had when when Jerry didn't immediately flee the country. Mm. There was like, and they, do they know? I mean, they would probably know what's going on better than us because they live in that world. You know, has there? I mean, your, your sources are telling you that no, the feud is still still there, Bob, but bubbling the, away. Yeah. But the presence of Jerry still in the country and the fact that the guards now think they don't need a post outside Patsy's house. Is there a decrease in the threat against the Hutches? I mean, is it is it maybe just objectionably obvious because the Kinnahans are on the run uh, or many of them are in jail? So quite simply, they don't have the capacity to carry out the kind of hits that they would have been able to carry out 2018. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I'll, I'll tell you something else. Uh, the, 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 the crime gang we've been writing about called The Family, right? Yeah. I, I, I was talking to someone uh, who said they're the biggest active organised crime group in Ireland. They're bigger than the Kenyans because the Kenyans focus is now outside and the Kenyans have been degraded in Ireland and they've, they've got, what is it, more than 50 people in prison and they're, they've been given a kicking. They say the family are bigger. So look, maybe the Kenyans have been degraded to such an extent that they, Mr Hutch is safer than we all thought. Mad. Well, I mean, it's just I just want to point out that the last time that um, we approached Patsy Hush, tried to get him to comment, obviously he didn't. But uh, on that particular day, his son Patrick and his son uh, Delboy were were both present. Uh, were both seen walking the streets as well. There would be threats to them, particularly Patrick, also. But they're just freely. I mean, pa- Patsy goes. I mean, the, while the guard post was there, Patsy would come out and walk the streets. I mean, it's not like the car. It's not like the car followed him. It it didn't. Like he, you know. So even from their own assessment, it seems they feel relatively comfortable walking the streets of Dublin at the moment for whatever reason. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. But look, it was it was certainly an interesting story anyway but it and it came Massive. out of the blue so and that's what do you the cost do you consider the cost yeah. I mean that's extraordinary just to have a car sitting there I mean surely somebody somewhere said we can't we can't continue to justify this I think yeah you know but anyway so we'll, uh, we'll always we'll take a tip know. off we'll, from our yeah but we'll always take a uh, we're always open for tip offs from our, our our legion of of listeners thanks very much yeah I really have to Thank people for listening to us. I mean, that's great that that story came from from a listener, and there have been many stories that have come from listeners. Um, some of which I won't identify here, but some uh, really, it's extraordinary the amount of tip offs and uh, interviews even that have come out from this podcast. So, thank you. I, I, I see. I think uh, obviously that they all buy the star in the mirror every day, but I think maybe it's a slightly different audience as well. But that's another way of linking up yeah with you know what i mean so well I, I think i think more people are consuming media in a different way and, mm. and through podcasts in particular certainly people my age are definitely people my age um are listening to podcasts that's how they're consuming their information mm. and I often i've even had people say to me i didn't i've never heard about uh, whatever particular story and i'm like well, it was only in the paper or it was on the website today and they haven't seen it. Now, I want to encourage people to please continue to buy newspapers or read uh, the Irishmirror.ie. But um, yeah, oftentimes some people are consuming their information through podcasts. Yeah, definitely. That's I, I've got a new lease of life doing the pod. And I've also got a new lease of life, as you know, 
people will know we're owned by Reach, which owns the Mirror and the Star. So our stories go in the Mirror and the Star and online. So I remember saying this when my stories first appeared on the Mirror, IrishMirror.ie. I thought, geez, this is brilliant. But nothing comes close <laughs> to the feeling of holding a paper with a splash that you've written. I would agree. Yeah, there's some bu- there's some buzz from it still. There is. Ah, there's yeah. so, there's so, there's something to be said for newspapers, and I, I hope that they maybe this is a conversation for another pod, but uh, I, I hope they 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 last a lot longer than anyone predicts. And mm. uh, we move on because we've got more topics to cover. Right. So uh, I thought this was good. You collated uh, all of the the latest drug seizures, and it's an extraordinary amount of money. Nearly forty. Or sorry, it's more than forty million worth of drugs seized by the cops in the last seven months. And I, I thought what was particularly significant about that uh, is that that is very close to the figure in 2021, the, the which is the most recently released figure yes. uh, of 63 million. Uh, and, and already in the first seven months of this year, 40 million. So, I mean, no, 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 this was only from the start of July. Okay, well, the, oh, oh, sorry, yeah, right? you're right, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so, so five weeks, no, because, what, again, the beauty of social media, a, a lad, uh, we're mutuals, I think you young people call it on Twitter, he was, I did something about a drugs bust, and he was going, Mick, you know, it's been a huge amount in the last wee while, so I went, that's given me an idea, so I went back, and I just picked 1st of July, because there had been a significant amount of seizures, because if you remember, remember that seizure, I don't know if seizure is the right word, the Donegal, the landing mm-hmm. of the, was it six six point four million of drugs, but before that there had been eleven and a bit million at Rosslare Europort. Then last week there was nine million, and then so I counted them all up, and it was forty four point seven million. Now that's an awful lot. So you're right, you get the the annual analysis. The latest one is from 2021, so that comes up in the annual report of the Garda Síochána, and that is released. So for 2021, it was released at the end of 2022, November, I think usually. So for 2022, it'll be released at the end of this year. So we don't have 2022 figures. The latest are 2021. And that was 63 million. I, I didn't have the time to go back from July to January to check. But I'd be very surprised if we weren't over that figure already. So maybe on a quiet day, I might do that. But in five weeks, it's 44.7 million. Just today, or was it yesterday? It all, it's all a blur. They got another 50 odd thousand. And even... There was a press release, which we'll talk about later uh, in the context of arrests. But on one day, you know, there were, I think there were three seizures of about 150,000 in Dublin alone. And it's just, it, a lot of them go under the surface because we would only really go, right, this is a big, it's over a million. But just when you sat down, do you, have you not noticed it yourself that you, you see the press releases and they go, just another one. So it just struck me as really important. So there has been, a, there has been, this has been, the last five or six weeks has been, a very, very uh, uh, positive time for the Garden National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. Well, it's great to see the work they're doing. It makes you wonder, uh, is somebody talking with all the seizures or are they all, uh, you know, just is this just the, the randomness of the job in a way that they've just got really lucky? I, For me, it's all about touts and it's all about inter- uh, electronic intelligence, shall we say. So, uh, you know, phones, okay. basically. Phones and touts, that's it. Well, that... That's we were talking about, you know, just with the Bomber Kavanaugh uh, case that the uh, in the previous pod with John Hand, just about the importance of of the EncroChat hack and how that uh, has effectively uh, broke the wheel, and they've just they've completely uh, dismantled the the cartel based off that. Yeah, so I mean, 
<clears throat> certainly encrypted conversations, I think, are, are, play, are beginning to play a huge role in investigations uh, across the board, aren't they? Yes. And I mean, I've said this repeatedly because it interests me. That operation, that's what jumped out at me when I saw the press release from the National Crime Agency about Bomber Kavanaugh. It said Operation Venetic, right? Mm. And Operation Venetic is the operation in Britain that uses EncroChat. Okay, so they will say, we got X in London with 50 million quid of cocaine and 14 guns as part of Operation Venetic. And that's your pointer that you know that it is EncroChat. You never see that in Ireland. And my point is that... And I think Justin Kelly, the AC in charge of serious crime op- operations, more or less admitted this when he was asked the question. Guards here aren't using it as an evidence. They're using it as intelligence. So in other words, they won't bring it to court. They will just use that as intelligence to track them down. But why do you think that, like, obviously the, in the UK they're using it, but why not here? I think I know. And I think your experience in the Jerry Hutch trial will tell you. I th- If you look at the legal challenge there was to the NSU's evidence that was gathered in Northern Ireland. That, there was significant legal arguments. It was illegal, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I'm one of these people, I'm going to be one of these people who say I'm not an expert, but, however, because we have a written constitution, I think Ireland, there are many more legal challenges here. And we've got fantastic barristers. I Honestly, I'm not trying to blow smoke up anybody's duda. Barristers in Ireland are fantastic. I really, I really, really admire them, and they will fight tooth and nail for their clients. And there are always legal challenges. For example, during the Graham Dwyer trial, there was loads of illegal uh, uh, challenges that the jury couldn't hear about the, the phones and that sort of stuff. And that's still ongoing, but various things. So there is a history in Ireland of challenging what do they call it? The fruit of the rotten tree, something like that, uh, the poison tree, right? So they will go after the the way the guards got the evidence, much more than in England. And there have been, there is an ongoing legal challenge in England, but it's just courts in Ireland, I find, do strike down things. So I think they're going, right, let's play the long game here and use it as intel because we do not want to have a case that's struck out. Just say they lose. They don't want to fight it in court, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, it's it's very smart. I think it's a very smart idea. Very smart. Um, you'd wonder, though, I mean, um, wasn't there a, uh, intelligence about Daniel Kinahan uh, using EncroChat, uh, certainly in relation to an attempt on Mago Gately? Like, they had all this evidence uh, that they believed that this particular person in the chat, uh, this Bond new person, was Daniel Kinahan. But, I mean, evidently, they're not, they're not going to use that, uh, that intel to secure any conviction. No, that's different, and I'll tell you why. And Kudos goes to, I, I don't know who it is, but it, uh, there's a bit of a legendary story about this, but it is true. So that was Imre Arrakis? Imre Arrakis, yes, yes. Right. So he was the hitman, the, the would-be hitman who was, he flew into Dublin, walked around Dublin, got a couple of wigs, and then went over to Blanche to prepare for a hit up north on Michael Gately up north. Doc B and the ERU had an operation, phones and, I mean, right, had an operation, kicked the door in. He had his EncroChat phone and he hit destroy you know there's a button you can sort of auto wipe but a doc b detective with fantastic thinking he saw the message and it says it's either shoot my go or kill my go on the screen and he took a photograph of it and like two seconds later it disappeared and there was a picture of my Gately as well sent to him wasn't it yeah exactly yes but they have the instruction from the person they allege is kenan so that's different because that is actual evidence that they can produce 
And that investigation is ongoing. That investigation hasn't gone away. So it's totally different from the, the you know, the messages. But I, that's why I raised it. Uh, that's just, well, you've answered my question then, because that, that's why I raised it, because I, I can recall that being a, a, about an encrypted conversation. So I wondered, will that go nowhere? But no, you think it's... Oh, it's there, yeah. And, and you know, and they are investigating for conspiracy to murder or whatever. But it's just fantastic. Great thinking by that Doc B fella. I, like, I'm talking yeah. a second after he took the photograph, it disappeared. It's like something out of the movies. Yeah, boom, gone. So <laughs> after playing. We'll see if that ever raises its head again. Um, I want to move on because I want to talk about your rather extraordinary story, which graced the front page of The Star today. Uh, a real head-scratcher of a story. Like it, 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 One of those stories that you love to get because it forces you to read it because you're like, wow, what the hell is this about? Uh, it's all about an Irish man by the name of Maurice O'Shea Salazar. So tell us... How you came upon this first, maybe, I'm interested. There was a story online a couple of weeks ago about a fella called Morris O'Shea. It, it came from Mexican media. It just popped up mm. on, on, on another website on a Saturday. And I thought it would be in the... I said, Irishman Morris O'Shea. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I was expecting it to be in all the Sundays, but it didn't appear anywhere. So a short time after that, uh, someone adverted me to it I'll put it that way and sent me a photograph and said that's your man Morris O'Shea and he was living in Clorglin in County Kerry home of the Puck Fair I said Jesus Christ now there were so many things happening it was a horrendous busy week I knew I had to go down to Clorglin because you cannot take one person's word I, I, I won't say who it was but I was satisfied that this person was 100% but we have a rule that we try and get three IDs so, uh, because that way, just in case, just to cover yourself. So I went down to Killorgan with, with Mick O'Neill yesterday uh, and we got seven IDs, um, which is brilliant because that way you can sleep easily at night. But it was just incredible. It was just knocking on doors because we knew he lived in a certain estate and Vanshuk, that's where he lived. And we knocked on doors and they're all going, ah, yeah, he lived over there. Lovely fella. Ah, he kept, he literally, one person said, ah, it's a bit of cliche, but he did keep himself to himself. You know, how many times mm, have we knocked yeah. on doors? Maybe it was nerves talking to me, but, you, you know, but anyway. Uh, so, so essentially, basically, the allegation is this man is in Mexico. He's Mexican-Irish. He came to Ireland around 2005. His father was from Kilorglin, killed in a car crash in Mexico, came back here, was living here, and then about a decade ago disappeared. And the next thing is, he turns up allegedly over in Mexico and he, the allegation by the Chile authorities is that he was a key player in the Sinaloa cartel. American says the world's biggest drugs cartel used to be led by El Chapo, involved in wars and killing people and everything. And that he was setting up what they said was a sale of the Sinaloa cartel in Chile. So they are extraditing him from Mexico to Chile and he's going to be in the clink. So it's just, but what struck me was this fella, he was involved in boxing. Everybody knew him. Locked in loads of doors. Everybody knew him. I am. And they called him Mexican. His nickname was Mexican. Not the Mexican. Wow. Morris Mexican. And people just couldn't believe it. They, they, they saw the story a couple of weeks ago. Because, oh, you know yourself, Paul, when you knock on doors, it's like, ah, yeah, you're here for, your, for your man, aren't you? I didn't have mm. to explain. So everybody in Kilorglin was talking about it. And we knocked in lots and lots of doors. But I just, just I, I give you one example. I, I was saying to Paul off air, doorsteps can be hard. We, we've spoken about this, but I also, they can also be invigorating. And when you're on the, tr have you ever done this where you, you, know, you have a rough address and you might knock on 10 doors 
and it's like following a lead. They're going, yeah, up there. So I was doing that yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But I knocked on the second house I knocked on. Lady came out, pensioner lady. And this often happens. People would not believe how often something like this happens. Pensioner lady. And I noticed she had a Belfast accent. So I got talking <laughs> to her. I said, where are you from? And she said, New Lodge Road, right? And I went to school at the bottom of the New Lodge Road. Pym Street Primary School and then St Malachy's the Secondary School Grammar School on the other side. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she goes, oh, yeah. And I said, what's your surname? And she told me. I said, hold on. I went to two, with, uh, with school with two lads with that surname. Ah, oh, yeah. And I give their names. He goes, oh, yeah, they're my nephews. <laughs> so I travel. I did, I did 900 kilometres yesterday. Knocked on a door. Round trip. Knocked on a door. And the lady answers, I went to school. It's, a, it's yeah. a small world. That that happens. But it does happen, doesn't it? I mean, you, you do. You meet some extraordinary people, yeah, on the road. Yeah. Ah, it's a small country. It's a small country. But that story is, it, it, roughly how old would he have been when he was living there? I got his date of birth today. He was born in November 1990. He came to Ireland around 2005 and he lived there maybe up to, what, he would have been 14, 15, maybe up to 21, 22. But he he had an an incident-packed time. People I spoke to yesterday were sort of, ah, bit of an idiot. But I've spoken to other people and there'll be a story in the Star and Mirror tomorrow who would have had direct dealings with him and they would be less complimentary of him. And I'm not going to spoil it, but one person said he made various comments and suddenly they've all made sense. So right. you'll see it in the paper tomorrow. And it'll be interesting to read that because I think it's just mad that this guy was living in this tiny little town in Ireland and uh, all of a sudden he's part of the Sanawak Hotel, a key player. <laughs> That's mental. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but also, you know, this hadn't, he hadn't been unmasked mm. or whatever, you know, so, you know, it was two weeks ago the story appeared online, right? And I thought I would go down and have to explain it. Everybody in the town knew the talk it. of the town, I'm oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it was the talk of the town and it just hadn't reached Dublin. So, but that's another lesson. One thing we do in the Star and the Mirror, we always go. And that's another lesson. I would not have got that story if I had not knocked on doors. I, uh, and that's one thing about journalism. It's not... You know, we're the one of the few papers or organisations who do that. I think. Yeah, love doing that. Uh, that that's what it's all about: going down and getting the story and talking to people. I had a similar experience with the Carlow Post Office story. Not exactly the same, but uh, everyone in the town knew Declan Hockney. Like I knew him personally. You know, that was what I thought was mad. Like you could, like no matter who we stopped to talk to. Oh him, yeah. I know him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I saw him five minutes ago, or I spoke to him yesterday, or it's like how this guy is known by the entire town of Carlo. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I wonder is that an Irish thing? Um I mean I've I've spoken about this before. I can remember and and we we're lucky to have councillors in Ireland. Councillors are very helpful, but they are totally in they're totally embedded in the community. Like I, I, I remember last year I was having to ring English councillors, you, you talk to Irish councillors and they help you, so you automatically assume councillors in England mm. would be the same. And it was like, why mm, are you ringing me? Yeah. Well, you know, you're in the community. Don't be ringing me. It, it was totally like, how dare yeah. you? I don't know, we're really lucky to have it because I, I can't tell you how many times uh, you might have an address for somebody and you you go down and it's a country townland and the address uh, is the same address that everyone in this big windy rural road has. And it might be several roads and you're like, for fuck's sake, we're not going to find this person. And nine times out of ten in a country town, you knock on a door, 
you wouldn't happen to know where X lives. Oh yeah, and they point you straight away. They, everybody knows everybody down in these country towns, and yeah, thank God for them because it gets you out of a hole. But the nightmare is, you say there's ten houses, and you knock yeah. on one, going, "Would you know where X lives?" And I go, "I'm X," and oh, then well, you're in the doo doo. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I, thankfully that hasn't. That, happened. It, oh, it's yeah. happened to me. No. Oh, it's no. it's it's Jesus. it's far from good. It's not good at all because you don't have time to. It's like oh. Oh, I did have. I uh, yeah, I doorstepped a fella before, uh, and he was like, "That's not me," and I was like, "But, but I, I, I know that you are that person." But he just kept going, "No, no, 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 you got the wrong house." And because he denied it so much, I was like, "Wait, well, this I'm just not getting anywhere." <laughs> but he was the person I was looking for, but uh, just vehemently denied that he was that person. That maybe that's a tactic. I, I don't want to give people. But that tactic worked with me in another thing. Do you remember the penalty points controversy? I'm not going to say who it is, right, before you have a heart attack and the solicitor yeah. heart attack. But uh, there were lots of names going around and and there was lots of documentation. And so we got documentation with a, a, a high-profile person, car, address, date of offence, and everything. And we go, jeez, this is great. This is going to be a great story. But he had changed cars between because there was the rage and everything so all we needed was to get him in his car and that's him and we were 100% proving it right because we knew it we had to prove it but he changed cars so we had to doorstep him and ask him and he just blanked us he went to ground and I know lots of other media organisations were going after the same person and he played a blinder he completely stymied his he would hang up on people he wouldn't give us the energy or the you know the oxygen of any even a denial blanked us and the story, we just couldn't get it over the line. Mad. Deny, deny, deny. Not even deny, ignore. Well, hey, well, you don't want to be giving people tips here. <laughs> no, 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 no. This will self-destruct. Yeah, listen, that's great. We touched a lot of topics there, so I think we should leave it there. Thanks for speaking to me, Mick. And uh, yeah, Thank you. we'll be back next week at some stage. Thanks very much. Cheers.